Well, if you would, take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 7 to 15 momentarily, but I want to share with you something that I received uh, from Adam Stuckey, if I can find it. There we go. Um, I had checked in with him on Thursday. And he says, uh, for those who don't know, we've been praying for Adam and walking with him for quite some time in his fight against leukemia, which, for which he was in remission, and then, um, and then it returned in November. So he's been doing chemo treatments, uh, hoping for um, a short-term remission uh, to extend his life. So this is what he writes. My PET scan from Monday showed that the treatment has been effective. 20% chance. The mass in my chest has, quote, resolved, according to Dr. Farag. He talked about the possibility of long-term remission with a cell boost from his sister who provided the stem cell transplant that he's gone through there are obviously risks of graft versus host, and that can be very dangerous. But all in all, it was very good news and deserves rejoicing in God's goodness, mercy, and steadfast love. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Let's just let's sing the doxology together. We need, to, we need to praise the Lord for this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Adam's very aware of what the long-term reality is, but how sweet a gift from the Lord this is. Amen? Amen. And uh, how appropriate that news of answered prayer would come on the week that we look at the Lord's Prayer together. So let's read Matthew chapter 6. I'll read verses 7 to 15. There should be a Bible in front of you if you didn't bring one with you should be around page 810 or 811. We've been on the same pages for quite some time. Uh, we haven't moved along, so um, it should be around in there, Matthew chapter 6. This is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and this is what the Spirit says. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Father, even as you are teaching, even as our Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, we pray that by your Spirit you would teach us to pray. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, your truth would be known to us, that we would not only see it and understand it, but that we would believe it and love it and that it would change how we pray and how we live. We ask that you would work to strengthen your church today through the preaching of your word by your servant. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The instinct of the soul in times of trouble and distress is prayer. Even those who aren't Christians find some comfort, some encouragement in the idea of praying. They may not want you to share the gospel with them anymore. They may think that as a Christian your thinking is antiquated or backwards or wrong. But when you offer to pray for them, I haven't had a single person, no matter the condition of their soul, deny me the the opportunity to pray with them in the middle of their hard time. If there's some post on social media about difficulties in life, you can just about count on seeing prayer somewhere in the comments. If you ask Christians, how is it that you want to grow in your spiritual life? One of the answers that you'll get over and over again is to grow in prayer. People want to pray more, to more often, more deeply. Prayer. We, our hearts cry out what the disciples' hearts cried out in Luke 11, just before you find the Lord's Prayer there, when they said, Lord... Teach us to pray. Well, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does just that. He teaches us to pray by giving us what we call the Lord's Prayer. The Bible never calls it that. That's something we've done. But in giving this to us, He teaches us that Christian prayer should seek God's glory and God's help. This is what prayer aims at. This is the model of prayer that Jesus gives us. When we look carefully here, we see a prayer that seeks God's glory and seeks God's help. And this is the pattern. He says, pray then like this. So, he tells us first how not to pray, then he tells us how to pray, all right? So, if you look at the beginning of verse uh, 8, I believe, you'll see how not to pray. Do not be like them. Don't be like them. Now, just before this, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus warns us against using spiritual, the spiritual discipline of prayer to draw attention to ourselves, right? You remember that? Let's read verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says. Don't use religion as a platform to perform for others. And now Jesus is saying, don't be like the Gentiles, the pagans. Now remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. And to the Jew, when they hear the word Gentile, they automatically think outsider, one who doesn't belong, one who is not one of God's people. Jesus isn't really emphasizing their ethnicity, though, as much as he is their false religion. That's what's at issue here. And he says, don't be like them. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. You see, when the Gentiles would pray, what they do, their habit was to basically make mention of all of the names of all of their gods. They would take all of their prayers to all of their gods, hoping to somehow hit a target and get an answer, that all that praying has to produce something. Now, I'm not a hunter, but it's a bit like buckshot, isn't it? I mean, buckshot is a shotgun shell. It's packed with these little bullets and these little pellets, and when you fire it, the pellets disperse. So if you're not a good shot and you're at close range, buckshot gives you better chance of hitting something. Well, that's what the Gentiles do. They prayed buckshot prayer. They prayed to every god they could think of. If they could just load up the shotgun shell of their prayer with as many god's names and as many words as they could tuck in there, then when they fire, they've got to hit something. They've got to do something. But friends, this is not the Christian approach. I mean, of course, first of all, we pray to one God and not many. But Jesus says this God, the one true and living God, knows what we need before we even say it. So Jesus says, don't babble on. Don't yammer on in your prayers thinking that's somehow to your advantage. That's what heap up empty phrases is. You get a nice picture, right? If I stack up all my words high enough, surely God will see them from heaven. But the idea is just babbling. It's just words with no engagement of the mind, with no engagement of the soul, with no engagement of the heart. It's just babble. It's just words. But let's be honest, isn't it quite easy to get mindless in our prayer times? Isn't it easy for your mind to wander? Maybe I'm the only one who has a mind that wanders when I pray. So let me just tell you about my problem. My problem is that my mind wants to wander. It wants to go to what I'm supposed to do the rest of the day or what happened yesterday or what's going on the next week or whatever is going on with my kids or, you know, it just, that's, that's something you have to fight against. But it can also be mindless if I just have my list in front of me. You know, Mondays we send out a list, a brief list of members that we want to pray for in ministries, and I can just read it off, right? I'll just read it right off the screen. All right, Lord, you ready? All right, here we go. We read the list. Our minds weren't engaged, our hearts weren't engaged, but I prayed that list. I said what I was supposed to say. This is the kind of mindless praying that Jesus is saying we ought not to do. The Christian life itself is never meant to be mindless. The Christian mind is to be engaged. Friends, when you, when you come 
to, when we come together as a church family, we don't check our minds at the coat closet and then come in here for worship so we can pick up our minds on the way back out to the real world. The mind of the Christian is to be engaged, and not, not just when we are studying the Bible, but when we are praying. We ought to be engaged. We ought not to just be babbling. Just on and on. No real thought included. So Jesus is saying, don't dismiss your mind from the prayer meeting. But he also says, don't pile up your words so that you think God has to pay attention. Now, he says that, but in reality, Jesus is not opposing long prayers, and he's not actually opposing repeated prayers. Jesus himself in Luke 6 prayed all night long before he called the apostles to follow him. In Matthew 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays three times, and the, the text says, using the same words, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, in fact, in Luke 18, remember, Paul, 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 Jesus tells his disciples a parable about a widow going to a judge. Why does he tell it? So that they will pray and not give up. He's not opposed to those things. He's not opposed to the forms so much. He's opposed to the formula. He's opposed to, I push button A, and God automatically does B. You know, if I rub the prayer bottle the right way, God the genie will come out and give me my three wishes. That's what he's opposing. So don't respond to Jesus' words here by saying, well, I've already prayed about that once. I'm never going to pray about it again. Don't. Dismiss the notion that you may need to pray a long time when you bow your head today. What we need to do in response to this is actually to examine our hearts, to ask ourselves something like, do I, do I pray and then I think, well, God's not holding up his bargain because I said the right things, I used the right phrases, I did all of that, and he's not answered. God's not holding up his end of the bargain. Well, that's actually the exact heart that Jesus says has gone wrong. This is what not to do. This is the heart he's correcting. Don't be like them. But then he goes on to say, pray then like this. He doesn't just tell us how not to pray. He shows us how to pray. Now, we can pray these words as they're written. You may have been tempted as I was reading them aloud. Like, instinctually you wanted to say them out loud. If somebody starts, read, starts the Lord's Prayer, aren't we all supposed to join in? Now, that's a fine thing to do for us to all repeat the Lord's Prayer together. But in actuality, while we can do that, this prayer is meant to be a model for us, to model for us how it is we ought always to pray. And if we follow this model, I'm convinced that our prayers will grow in seeking God's glory and seeking God's help. Seeking God's glory and seeking God's help. So the first thing Jesus wants us to do is to seek God's glory. Listen to the beginning of the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. You see, prayer isn't just about presenting our needs to God. It's bigger than that. It's about presenting ourselves to God. About having our minds and our lives and our hearts reoriented around who He is. And it starts with this address. All of these phrases orient our minds away from ourselves and toward the Lord, don't they? It begins with the address. Our Father in heaven. Note that. Jesus doesn't teach us to send thoughts to anyone. He doesn't teach us to send good vibes to anyone. He doesn't teach us to send prayers to anyone. He teaches us to pray to God. Okay? So we have to get that straight. That is the starting point. Our prayers aren't toward other people. They may be on behalf of other people, but they are not toward them. Christian prayer is not sent to others. It is submitted to God. So our Father in heaven. Now the Jews of that day, they would use great exalted language when they prayed. They would say, you know, uh, sovereign king or Lord of the universe. And these are certainly right ways to talk about God, to address God. Jesus says, after all, he's in heaven. But there's more to it than that. This God whose throne is heaven, who is transcendent, who is above us, who is out of our grasp, Jesus says he is also Father. He is near. He's like a dad bending down to his child and cupping his ear. That we have his attention. And notice, notice the possessive pronoun here. God is our Father. Not so much mine. Not in this prayer. Our Father. You see, while we may pray alone, we never pray actually in isolation. The way that Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us a family prayer. So, when we're tempted to skip gathered prayer times because, well, you know, I can just pray at home. I mean, my prayers reach heaven's ear as easily at home as they do in a particular place with other church members, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, that's true. But I would just encourage you, remember the word, our that word should actually draw us toward one another to pray, not keep us away from one another. Our Father in heaven. And then having addressed God, we move on to these requests about God's glory. How Hallowed be your name. Now, names are significant in the Bible. They're not just labels. Names point to character, but you already know that. I want you to think right now. Think of somebody who is significant in your life, whether they are living or whether they have gone on. You got it? You know their name? When you hear their name, you don't think, oh, that's what I should call them when I see them. When you hear their name, you know what you think of? Who they are, their character, their person. And it's the same with God's name. 
It is who he is. He is, I am. Now, God's name is already hallowed, okay? That means it's already holy. It's already set apart from all the other names that there are. His character, his person is unique. But the prayer is that humanity would recognize it that way and treat it that way. That God's name would be hallowed among us, that we'd stop throwing it around in anger or in disgust or in surprise or in jokes or in curses, but rather that we would revere His name because we revere God. And that reverence, friends, that starts with us. If you're actually praying and you mean it, hallowed be your name, do you know what will happen in your own life? You will seek to hallow God's name in your own life. This isn't just a prayer for those people out there. This is a prayer for these people in here. Hallowed be your name. Next is your kingdom come. Now, in praying your kingdom come, we're not actually asking God to rule the universe. He already does. This kingdom is more about his kingdom of salvation, the kingdom that Jesus brought and inaugurated in his life, death, and resurrection. So when we pray, your kingdom come, there's essentially, there's a few different aspects of it that can come through. His ruling reign, his, his reign over his people. Well, when I pray your kingdom come, in part I'm saying, may your kingdom come in my life. May your kingly rule, may your rule, your lordship be more evident in my life. We're also praying, may your kingdom come in the sense that we want God's kingdom to expand and to grow and for more people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also pray your kingdom come in the sense that we long for the day of his return. Amen? That he will come, that it will come. That the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember driving around with a friend of mine uh, when I was probably 20 or 21, and we were talking about the return of Christ. And... Uh, we agreed that we wanted Christ to return, but to tell on myself and him without saying his name. Uh, but we said, but you know, I hope I get to get married first. I hope I get to have a family first. I, I hope I get to experience some of life. I really want Jesus to return back, but could he just hold off until... Now, if you remember yourself in your 20s and you were thinking about the return of Jesus, maybe you, would, you were thinking the same kinds of things. That's actually not your kingdom come. That's not that prayer. Shame on me. If the kingdom were to have come when I was 21, do you know that would be better than anything else that's happened? But in God's kindness and mercy and plan, more has happened more folks have been born and come into the kingdom. And so we're thankful for that. But your kingdom come in my life, in the world, and at the end, your kingdom 
come. Your will be done. Now again, there's, there's a sense in which we don't have to pray that God's will will be done. All right? Uh, Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So there's a sense in which you don't have to tell the Lord, give the Lord permission as it were. Well, Lord, you go ahead and do your will. All right? If that's what you want, Lord, you go ahead and do it. That's not what it is. This is a prayer that God's will, that God actually invites us into the process of his will being done on earth by praying this. God accomplishes his work on earth by inviting us in to pray so that our prayers are part of his work. We want our, his will to be done in our lives and in the lives of those around us. This is exactly what Jesus prayed, isn't it? Not my will, but yours be done. And that's what we should pray. Now, what this doesn't mean, beware of this, because praying that God's will would be done doesn't mean you become passive. Like we're going to sit down and just wait and see what God does. That's not actually how God works. God works through our work and through our obedience. Philippians 2 says that God works in us to will and to work for his good purpose. So again, if we truly want God's will done, do you know what you'll be doing and I'll be doing? We'll be seeking out God's will in his word. And we'll be committed to doing the will that we see revealed there. We get so caught up in the will of God being mysterious when God says, this is my will for you, your sanctification. You want God's will to be done? Pursue spiritual growth. You will be seeing God's will done in your life. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Next phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in some sense, this phrase actually applies to all three requests, doesn't it? Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In essence, we pray for life on earth to be more like life in heaven, more and more of God's name being honored, more and more of God's rule and reign here and now, more and more of God's will being carried out. It won't be perfect, but wouldn't it be better to be closer than to be farther away from that? Isn't it better for there to be for society's laws to reflect God's standards rather than to be completely anti-righteous? Isn't it better for people to attempt loving one another even if they don't fully understand love or the love of Christ? Isn't that better to try to attempt to love one another than open hatred for one another? Isn't that better? It's, not, it's still filthy rags, you see. And filthy rags, they're still, still the good deeds are filthy rags before God. But as on earth as it is in heaven, it's just an approximation. We're not thinking heaven's going to come to earth. We just want to see more little glimpses, even if they're dusty. Even if they're incomplete. Even if they're imperfect. Because humanity flourishes more on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's what would happen. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You know why we need to pray that? 
Do you know what our lives are about? My name. My little kingdom. My will. You just go to the heart of every argument, every fight, you know, fighting tooth and nail with other people. At the heart of it, you'll either find your concern over your name, your concern over your little kingdom, or your concern over your will being done. And what, what does Jesus do? He reorients our minds to God. That life is about God's name. God's kingdom, God's will, that we pray for His, to seek His glory. And then we pray to seek His help. This is the second half of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So here's the shift, all right? The first half of the prayer is focused on God and His glory. The second half of the prayer focuses on man and his need, okay? So we pray to seek God's glory, and we pray to seek God's help, all right? The only thing left out of this, by the way, if you think, if you think about that ACTS acronym that, you're all, you know, that we're taught, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, the only thing left out is thanksgiving, but all that is is a response to the answer of God to the second half of the prayer, when He gives the daily bread, when He forgives, when He leads us not into temptation but delivers us from evil. So seek God's help first praying, give us this day our daily bread. Now, in Jesus' day, laborers were paid by the day, and it wasn't some grand sum. It wasn't, uh, there, there, was no, there was no putting some of it in savings. There were no frills. Uh, there were no lattes. Just enough to get the bread for today. These folks who are listening to Jesus know what it means for God to provide daily food, to need God to provide daily food. And in our city, there are people right now who know what that means, to know that same need so that they can eat today. It's part of why we partner with Good News Mission and with Wheeler Ministries. But the sense of need for God to provide is largely lost on us, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Lunch is already planned. I remember, I remember Isaac Shaw, who uh, leads uh, the Delhi Bible Institute. I, he may have mentioned this, or I may have mentioned it, but I'm going to mention it again. Um, <laughs> he talked about his, his, some of our partners doing planting churches across North India. He talked about his first trip to the United States. And he came, and he was staying in a home, and he got into the home, and he went into the kitchen, and he went into the pantry. And the pa every shelf on the pantry was packed. And he opened the refrigerator, and the refrigerator was packed. There wasn't space for you to put anything else in there. And so he's looking around, he's amazed at this, and then his hosts say, all right, let's go out to eat. <laughs> and this made no sense to him. 
I mean, our fridges and pantries are packed, and if they're not, you know what you can do? You just get on your little phone, and you make a few clicks, and you drive to Kroger. You don't even have to go in the stinking grocery store. You just sit there, you call them and say, yes, bring me my food, and then they do. They bring your groceries to you. Give us this day our daily bread. I can skip that when I got that. There's an app for that. You see, our abundance has lost, has made us lose sight of God's place at the dinner table. Made us forget that from the planting of the seed to the rain and the sun required to grow it into a plant, to, pro- to produce fruit, to become a crop of vegetables and fruits and grains, to the care and feeding of pigs and chickens and cows for meat every bit of it is under the providential rule and guidance of the Lord himself so when you eat that sandwich think of all that the Lord did to get it into your hands give us this day our daily bread Forgive us our debts. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, just as asking for daily bread reminds us of our dependence on God for physical life, confessing our sins and seeking forgiveness reminds us of our dependence on God for spiritual life. And so we pray, forgive us our sins. It reminds us that God is holy and we are not. It reminds us that he could have rightly sent us to hell and been just. That, and it, but it reminds us also that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that he forgives. Now, some people think God forgives because that's his job. I mean, he's God. He's supposed to forgive, right? No, God forgives because he is merciful, because he has provided a way of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, because Jesus endured the punishment that we deserve, that he died on the cross as the only sufficient sacrifice for our sin, so that when we turn to him for forgiveness, we can find it. We find forgiveness. We're let off the hook. We're set free from sin's penalty. We're saved from eternal hell. But friend, it's only for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Do you know the forgiveness of God? If not, I would plead with you as Isaiah did his people, call on the Lord while he may be found. And connected to this forgiveness that we seek from God is our forgiveness of others, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that may sound quite confusing, but Jesus isn't saying that we go to God like a child bargaining with his father, right? Now, I did this thing. So will you reward me with that? Lord, I forgave other people. That means you have to forgive me, right? I've earned it. 
I've got your back to the wall, Lord. You have to forgive me. That is not what this means in any way, shape, or form. Forgiving others isn't leverage to get God to forgive me. Forgiving others is actually proof that I've been forgiven by God. You see, because forgiven people forgive people. There's a little, there's a little book by Jay Adams called From Forgiven to Forgiving. It would be a great thing for you to pick up and read. Stott says about this, Once our eyes have been opened to the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. So that Jesus underlines this once he finishes giving the prayer. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, friend, we can't extend an open hand to heaven to receive forgiveness while the other is a clenched fist in the face of those we ought to forgive. This is not the posture of a Christian. The person who thinks they can do this is deceived and is actually not a Christian. And then the prayer finishes, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God does tempt us and we need him to stop? Or that God is tempted to tempt us and we need him to resist that temptation? No, no, not at all. James chapter 1 says that God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So what's going on here? Well, as you might imagine in a passage like this, there's a whole host of explanations that people offer up. I think the simplest one is that this is actually a figure of speech. Lead us not into temptation. Uh, you may pronounce it another, ways, but, uh, another way, but I pronounce it litetes. Litetes is a figure of speech where you make a statement by negating the opposite of it. Okay? You make a statement. And we do this. You think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Just say what you mean. Mean what you say. You don't have to use all these figures of speech. But you do it, don't you? You don't believe me? She's no spring chicken. What does that mean? Tell me, what does it mean? She's old. Well, now, why didn't you just say that? That's a figure of speech that we use. She's no spring chicken. You won't be disappointed. Well, that means that you'll, you'll like it. You'll appreciate it, right? It wasn't easy getting here. He's not the friendliest person. No good deed goes unpunished. But these things actually appear in the Bible. When Paul wants to speak to the crowd that basically has beaten him, he wants to stand up and speak. He tells one of the guards, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no... a citizen of no obscure city. In other words, I'm a citizen of an important city. 
You remember when Eutychus falls over dead while Paul's preaching? Something you never want to happen on a Sunday morning. But Eutychus falls over dead and he's raised to life. Do you know what the Bible says? They were not a little comforted by that. Meaning, they were very comforted. And I think that that is the kind of thing that Jesus is doing here. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, lead us in righteousness and deliver us from evil. Now, why would Jesus use a figure of speech like that in prayer then? Well, I think it's because his emphasis is actually on the need to be protected from evil. And having both phrases like this orients our minds to the spiritual reality that we have an enemy like a lion in tall grass waiting to pounce, that evil is in every shadow, that sin crouches behind every door and that it wants to have us. We need to be reminded that on our own we are powerless against it. And so we pray, lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, in the second half of the prayer, Jesus just keeps setting our mind on God, how we need Him. He teaches us to seek God's help. We bring our empty stomachs, and He fills them. We lay out our sins, and He forgives them. We sense the threat of evil from outside of us and within us, and He protects us. Now, step back from this prayer and listen, listen to it again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Everything that we need in order to pray, in order to grow in prayer, is right here. The Lord's Prayer helps us step out of the craziness of our lives and orient our minds to God to seek His glory to seek His help so that we may or may not ever make it a habit to actually pray these words, but we ought to pray then like this because Christian prayer seeks God's glory and seeks God's help. And friend, your prayer and my prayer needs to seek God's glory and seek God's help. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to pray. We ask that you would use these words, this model, the teaching of your dear son to reshape the way we think about prayer that you would reorient our minds when we come to pray to not be first about presenting ourselves, our needs to you, but presenting ourselves to you for you to 
shape our minds, to set our minds on you, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, to pray for your glory, seeking your name, your kingdom, your will, and leaving ours behind, seeking your help in ways that we so easily take for granted like daily bread, seeking your forgiveness, knowing it transforms us to forgive others, seeking your protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of it, Lord, is oriented toward you. It lifts you up and it calls you down. It exalts you and implores you. So we pray that over and over again you will teach us to pray. Help us to be a congregation that prays in secret, that prays together, where prayer is not just the transition in a worship service or the way to close a meeting but that we bring ourselves before you with our mind on you, that you might be glorified and we might know your gracious help. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.